Hello, and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, please. And please stand with me. I'm going to read God's Word first. We, we want to read the Word first and foremost when, when you read the Bible. Basically, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And uh, this is God's Word. I'm going to read Acts 18, verses 18, all the way to chapter 9, verse 7. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At sentry, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And he came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence with us now. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would correct us, and that you would do whatever work you want in our hearts for your glory. We pray in Christ's strength and in his name. Amen. Please be seated. It's a great passage of scripture we're looking at today, and, and it teaches us something. It's going to teach us something that God is faithful to provide. And he is faithful to provide, if you're a believer, he's faithful to provide what you need in his perfect time so that you can navigate life's turbulence in Christ's strength and for his glory. And we are living in turbulent times, are we not? Charlotte, North Carolina is the latest example of mankind's depravity rung amok, rioters ruining property, emotions running high, opinions swarming like bees, everyone's got an opinion, everyone's divided and and in this and so many other issues in life, and you see this over and over again, everyone's got their opinion, and it's a subjective one. And God's truth, the word of God, is the only objective 
perspective on life. And what we see over and over and over again is that God is able, by his grace, to make beauty out of the mess that we have made. You think about spiritually how God provides peace for believers. We who were at enmity against him, we who were his enemies, by his grace, he makes peace by the blood of his cross. He turns our hearts so that we would yield and be at peace with him. And we have only him to thank. And I love how God perfectly times his provision. He orchestrates seemingly random events into something of beauty. And we've seen this over and over again in the book of Acts. Last week, we were looking at Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. And there we saw that Jesus encourages his discouraged servants. We saw Jesus encouraging Paul. And he does so in our lives in a similar way. He encouraged Paul through faithful friends. Paul actually had people to lean on in the midst of discouragement. That he encouraged Paul through brand new believers that really helped him get his eyes off himself and onto the needs of others. And God does this in our life too, that he encourages us through faithful friends, he encourages us through brand new believers, where we get so wrapped up in our life that we can't see straight, and, and God points us to people who need us. Brand new baby believers need care and feeding. And then most significantly, what we saw last week is that Jesus encourages his discouraged servants through his own presence and his promises. And we saw that very clearly. He was telling Paul, I am with you. Jesus said, I am with you always, even at the end of the age. That is something that believers can bank on. That this is true, that Jesus is always with us. That never will he leave us, never will he forsake us. And then his word, he promised, he promised uh, that he would always be with us, and he has given us his promises, he's given us his word. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. It's an objective perspective that will not go away. And swarming all around are all these subjective opinions. And so God really redirects us by his word, and he corrects us by his word. And what we saw last week is that as a result of God doing this in Paul's life, as a result of encouraging him through his friends, through new believers, and through Jesus', Jesus his own presence and promises, Paul had this freedom to preach the gospel unhindered for a while. He didn't have to worry about all this persecution coming his way for a while. And now we get to Acts 18, we start at verse 18, we go all the way to chapter 19, verse 7, and what is happening is they're continuing to travel. They're on what is known as the second missionary journey, and they're continuing to travel, and then they return to the launch point of this second journey, and then we see them start a third missions journey right in the midst of this passage. Now, there's a theme that emerges really out of three seemingly random passages, and it's the faithfulness of God to provide. The faithfulness of God to provide. You want to remember, too, that Acts is a transitional history of the early church, and people were going through transitions. These verses we're looking at today are really tracking the transition that many Jews were making from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. They were making that transition, and it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always smooth sailing, as we see. And if you're a believer in Jesus today, you are going through a transition that's going to last your whole entire life. You are going through a lifelong transition from reliance upon yourself to reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you make 
progress in the Christian faith, but some days you feel like, isn't it true? You feel like you take one step forward and what, three, four, five steps back, and you battle with sin, and you battle with temptation, and you battle with things that you're like, wait, I'm a believer. But it's because you're in the process, you're transitioning through what we call progressive sanctification, where God is working in your life, and he is using you in the process, and his word, and other people, and he is freeing you from sin, and making you more like Christ. And sometimes you say, I don't see the progress. I, I don't see this happening. But if you are a believer, you can be assured that this is what is going on. And God sees the whole picture. And in that process, you can be assured that God will provide exactly what you need. At this point in time, in the book of Acts, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. There are many people that still had not heard of Jesus. The, the estimated population of the world at that time was 170 million people, which might sound like a staggering amount, but it, you need to remember that some of the cities that they've been through already that are recorded in the book of Acts had hundreds of thousands of people in them. So you've got 170 million people strong and growing. So there's always people that are lost, always people that need Jesus. And it's just multiplied. Today, we are at 7.4 billion and growing. A lot of people who are lost and need Jesus. What I want to point out to you today, really, are, are three things that God provides. Three things he faithfully provides for his servants. I, I want you to first call your attention to verses 18 through 23 and how God provides something for Paul that he really, really needed because he doesn't work alone. God provides willing co-workers, willing co-workers. Now, Gallio, God had used an unbeliever, Gallio, to open the door for more gospel preaching. So Paul is able to, to stay longer in Corinth and preach the gospel unhindered. Praise God for the way he orchestrates things. But at some point, he leaves the Corinthian church, and he sails to Syria. And, and guess who he takes with him? Priscilla and Aquila. The same people that God had used to encourage him in his discouragement, he takes these trusted co-workers, these willing co-workers, these fellow workers in the gospel, he takes them with him, and they go with Paul. Tells us something about the Corinthian church. There was ample leadership left behind. Gaius and Sosthenes and Crispus and others that had come to faith in Christ, and they leave, and, and Paul trusts them to go with him on this trip. Now, we also read that he gets a haircut in Sencre, and you're like, why did the Holy Spirit tell us that Paul got a haircut? You know, some of you are like, I got a haircut, and no one's noticing, right? But he gets his haircut at the eastern port of Corinth, and the reason why is because he's under a vow. Next question, what's that? <laughs> what kind of vow are we talking about? He was under a Nazarite vow which was a special pledge of separation and devotion to God. You can read all about it later in Numbers chapter 6. But it would last for a specific period of time, and you would take this vow in, in gratefulness to God, uh, saying that you really want to depend on God, that you want to be consecrated to Him. It was a vow of purity and holiness and thankfulness to God and gratefulness. It was a Jewish way, a very dis distinctly Jewish way of saying, I need your help, Lord. 
And Paul was doing this. He's in this transition from the old to the new. And here he's doing a distinctly Jewish thing in the midst of this missions trip where he's telling people about Jesus. Because Paul was intent on being set apart for God's service. Paul was intent on being devoted and consecrated and dependent on God. He was grateful. Maybe he was thanking God for saving his life to preach another day so many times. He gives thanks. You know, we need to do that. We need to, we need to set aside time to reflect, be renewed, be, re, be refreshed, and express our dependence on God and our gratefulness to him. And we need to do that daily and deliberately. Most of you know that I had the privilege of taking six weeks of a pastoral sabbatical this summer, and it was a beautifully blessed time by God, but guess what? Every day I had a to-do list, and it's the same to-do list I have every day plus whatever specific things I have to do, but here's what it was. Get in the word of God and pray and have silence and solitude and write and think and exercise and eat well and get rest. I do those things all the time, but I was able to set aside a time. I had the gift of setting aside that time Doing things I do on an ongoing basis, but getting more of it. And maybe that's kind of like what this vow was for Paul. Like, you know what? I'm already doing these things, but I really, I really want to make sure that I'm, I'm in the right spot. I think that's what it means to abide in Christ, where, where, you are, where you're having the Hebrews chapter 4 ongoing Sabbath rest for the people of God where you are resting from your works and trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross, where he shed his blood in your place, when he took your, the punishment that you deserved so that you wouldn't spend eternity in hell. And we need to take an ongoing, daily, even deliberate, focused time to remember that. Paul takes this vow and then he comes to Ephesus and this is the most important city in Asia Minor. This, this is where he leaves Priscilla and Aquila, and, and they remain. They remain to establish business, most likely, and help the church. They have a church meeting in their home. Looks like Priscilla and Aquila stayed in Ephesus for several years before they returning to Rome, and again, a church is meeting in their home. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 tells us that. And so Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila, these trusted co-workers, these willing co-workers, trusting them to help disciple believers, and he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews. This was his pattern. He would go and he would, he would do questions and answers and debate with them about who Jesus is. Now the church there wants him to stay, and he says, no, I'll return to you if God wills. I'll, I'll leave the door open to that, but right now I'm I'm going to leave, and he leaves and sails away from Ephesus, and he goes to Caesarea, and we're going to find that there's a reason. He goes to Caesarea, and it says that he goes up and greets the church. Very notable words here that Luke is describing really the geography of where they were. The words goes up is really code for going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was higher than any of the surrounding regions. If you were going to Jerusalem, you'd have to go up to it. If you were going anywhere else, you would go down to it. And so he doesn't tell us specifically he's in Jerusalem, but we know from these words he went to Jerusalem. He goes up to Jerusalem, greets the church there. But you have to ask, why did he do that? Why did he do that? It was because of the vow he had taken. See, in those days, if you took the vow of a Nazarite and you, and you started the vow outside of Jerusalem, at the end of the vow, you would shave your head, as Paul did, and then 
present yourself in the temple within 30 days. And that's what he did. Doing a distinctly Jewish thing to show his dependence on God and his gratefulness to God. And then he goes down to Antioch where the second journey all started. And and this marks the end of the second missionary journey. And you'll notice in your Bibles, look at verse 22. It's without fanfare. He lands at Caesarea, goes up to Jerusalem, greets the church, goes down to Antioch, and then verse 23. After spending some time there, so he spends time in Antioch, I'm sure giving reports of all that God did, he departs and went from one place to the next through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. There's the start, again, without fanfare, the start of the third missionary journey. And what's he doing? He does what Christians do. He does what Christians who serve Jesus do. He is serving Jesus. He is helping Christians grow. He is, he's got to be teaching the word and praying with other believers. He's fellowshipping with them. They're reaching out. This is what we do. It's what Christians do. And all along the way, you see God providing willing co-workers for Paul. He doesn't do these things alone. Sure, he's the most notable leader, but he was never alone. And you go on into chapter 19, and you see some co-workers named, some, some obscure names. In fact, go with me to Romans chapter 16. You want to see some, some names of co-workers of Paul. Go to Romans 16. Sometimes you get to the end of a Bible book, and you're like, oh, this is just the... This is just the ending credits or something, like you're watching a movie or something, like uh, uh, only people who were in the movie, you know, read those or whatever. But this is very significant, very significant what Paul is doing here. Uh, um, Romans 16.1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. There's a willing co-worker. Welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever she may need from you. So be a willing co-worker of this woman, Phoebe, because she needs your help. She's not going to do all this alone. Look at verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is short for Priscilla. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my life. Go down to verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. So they were with Paul when he was imprisoned for his faith. They were well known to the apostles, and get this, they were in Christ before Paul. They were believers before Paul. Paul led a lot of people to Christ in and outside of prison. But here are two that are getting pointed out that are fellow prisoners for Christ, and they were believers before Paul. Look at verse 9. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Go down to verse 21. Here's a name you know. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And over and over again, what he's doing is he's pointing out people that had been willing co-workers for the gospel and were continuing to, to serve the Lord. Let me ask you, do you have a handful of people like that in your life? Where you say, these are co-workers for Christ that I am, that I am connected with and that we're, we're standing together for Jesus and the gospel? I hope you have some. If you don't, pray for some. Because you can't be a lone ranger. You might say, well, hey, well, in my, in my place of work, I'm the only Christian. Wonderful. Pray that God would open hearts to the gospel and there would be more Christians. Maybe you could even introduce them to Jesus. 
Pray that God brings others there so you're not all alone, but as God continues to do in his people's lives, he, he brings along willing co-workers where, where you know you're sharing the load. You know you don't have to shoulder all the brunt of everything on your own, but you actually have someone to, to, to share and carry the burden with, trusted teammates that will stand with you. Take you back to 1985 or so, 86 or so, and I had a, a burden. I was uh, serving at a church, the same church I became a believer at, same church I married, met and married Angela at, and I had a burden for people in our city that weren't being reached. And I had a good friend who was a principal at a school, at a public school, and he told me, he said, there's a lot of kids in this school that are living in the motels on a on, uh, on Firestone Boulevard. And so I was praying for someone to go with me. And I had a friend named Marcello who said, I'll, I'll, I'll do that with you. And we took our Bibles and some tennis balls <laughs> and started playing and started a Bible club and other people joined us and, and people came to faith in Christ and we brought kids to the church and, and it was awesome to be able to have a fellow worker in that work, willing sharing the same passion and desire to reach people for Christ. I think about Grace Church and, and our leadership. I think about our staff, our elders, our deacons, our deaconesses, our ministry leaders. I am so thankful to God that we have a team of people that are moving in the same direction. I was just talking to a pastor friend of mine at another church, and he told me he is so discouraged because their leadership is fractured. They are not together. There's division. Well, they can't move. They, they're stuck. And he is, is very discouraged. I'm so thankful for, for Grace Church that we have a team of people that are on the same page. That we are, God has put us together as willing co-workers and we are different. We are different personalities. But we have said, well, this is where we're going as a church. This is what we're going to do. Now I realize that a lot of people, they just want to be alone. Some people say, I don't like people. I'm like, you got to get used to it here. People are going to be around. There are some people who are isolated. There are some people who are not accepted, who want to be a part. They want to be a willing coworker, but people are like, you know, um, we don't need you. We don't like your personality. We don't like the way you act or whatever. That should not happen in Christ's church. You should work through that thing. You need coworkers to help shoulder the load. You need co-workers to carry the burden with you. You need trusted teammates standing together for Jesus and the gospel. Let me go one other place with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Go there before we get to our next point. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul gives some strong words to the church because they were off base. Here they were in, in this transition between Trusting themselves and fully trusting in Christ, this progressive sanctification that every believer is in the midst of, and he talks to the church, and he basically corrects them very strongly. And he tells them some things about, about the issues that they're dealing with. He tells them in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 1, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He's saying, you're little baby Christians, you're supposed to be growing up. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready. So sad. And even now you're not ready. You're still of the flesh. 
And here's why. There was jealousy and strife among them. And he says, you're behaving in merely human ways. People were saying, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. He says, you're being mere humans. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. God gave the growth. The one who plants and waters, they're nothing. God gives the growth. Look down at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. They, they, need to, they needed to work together. That church needed to get it together and let their divisions go and work together. Praise God that we are working together. Let's move on to the next point. Second point I want you to, to, to notice, and it's in verses 24 to 28, that God provides something very painful, necessary correction for Apollos. Necessary correction. There's a Jew named Apollos who's being instructed further by Aquila and Priscilla, and he becomes a powerful Christian preacher. He's from Alexandria. That's in Egypt. It's located near the mouth of the Nile River, and in the first century, Alexandria had a huge Jewish population. So here's a guy who was born outside of Israel, who was raised in a Jewish cultural setting, and he comes to Ephesus, and he's described as an eloquent man. He could speak really well. And he was mighty in the scriptures. He was competent in the scriptures. That's the only place in the New Testament you see that phrase. And it refers to his thorough knowledge of the word of God. This would have been the Old Testament scriptures. And that knowledge combined with his eloquence, his, his gift in speaking, allowed him to literally crush his Jewish opponents in debate over who Jesus is. Verse 28 tells us he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing from the scriptures. That's what you need to do if you want to tell someone about Jesus. Show them from the Bible who Jesus is. That's what he did. He knew the word of God. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. You trace that phrase in the Old Testament and it describes the spiritual and moral standards that God expects of his people. Proverbs 10, 29. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless. Destruction to evildoers. Hosea 14, 9. The ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them. So you want to Walk in the ways of the Lord. This says that he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Specifically, that means he was instructed in the way of Jesus. He knew all about Jesus. It says that he was fervent in spirit, which can be a reference to the Holy Spirit, empowered, that his teaching was empowered by the Spirit, which would make sense. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he was telling about the deeds of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the, the death, resurrection, uh, the, uh, the exaltation of Christ, the return, the promised return of Christ, but he was deficient in some of his teaching. There was something missing. There was something off. We know this because he was speaking boldly in the synagogue, and Priscilla and Aquila were there hearing him, and you've got to be thankful that they didn't stand up and shout him down. They actually took him aside. This is a great pattern. If you, if you want to correct someone in a godly way, you don't get angry at them. You don't uh, be unloving towards them. You basically, you basically take them aside and explain to them what you want to say. They realize what he's missing, and they take him aside, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. They instruct him in the faith. 
What was he missing? He was missing the, the baptism in, in Christ. He, he only knew about John's baptism, and so he had, he had some, some things to learn. So Priscilla and Aquila, they instruct him, this couple, this tenderhearted couple, instruct Apollos. And you know what we hear about, you know what we, what we hear? We hear that um, the next thing you know, he's out preaching in another place because the church said, this guy's right on and, and we're going to send him out. Because what happened is, Apollos was teachable. He was teachable. He had traits that we want to have. He was open to be corrected. It was like Moses with his father-in-law Jethro. You can read all about that in Exodus chapter 18, where, where Moses, who's chosen by God to lead the whole nation, his father-in-law comes along and says, what you're doing isn't good. He was taking everything on his own. And instead of Moses saying, you know, you're not chosen by God. Who are you to talk to me about that? I know what I'm doing. Instead of that, he listens to his father-in-law. He takes his advice. He, he gets people to help him. And Proverbs, by the way, Proverbs is chock full of, of sayings that go like this. If you're wise, you'll accept advice. If you're wise, you'll accept correction. If you're foolish, you won't. You need to admit you need correction. Not resentful that you were approached, but humble and teachable like Apollos. Again, later on he goes and wants to preach in Achaia, and the brothers encourage him. They write to the church to welcome him. That points up the idea that he was known in the church that he was accountable to the leaders. It's like church membership. I'll say this to a lot of people. I'll say, if you come into Grace Church, and when we love people coming to Grace Church, whether new believers or, or been believers for a long time, and I'll say, if you've come to Grace Church of Orange, and you left issues at your old church that are undone, and you are not reconciled with your brothers and sisters in Christ, like if we call them up, they're gonna say, they're troublemakers, you know, or something like that. Go back, make things right with your brothers and sisters in Christ because if you don't, you're going to do the same thing here and we don't want that. We want to have peace. We want to, have, uh, we want to be working together and have accountability and healthiness as a church. So what does he do? He goes and he is, here's what he does. He greatly helps those who through grace believed. That's how you believe. You believe by the grace of God. And what he did is he either he led people to Christ or he helped them grow. That's your job as a Christian. Either lead people to Christ or help them grow. And you can do both, right? You lead people to Christ, then help them grow. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by Scripture who Jesus is. There was great fruitfulness and faithfulness in his ministry. And it was due to the necessary correction that God provided for him through Priscilla and Aquila. Now, I realize that there are people who think they know it all. And they're not willing to listen to people. They resist anyone saying anything to them. They're you know, foolishly filled with blind arrogance. But what we want to be is people who are hungry for the truth. And we want to accept it readily. We want to have humble hearts that want to please God. And I realize there's all kinds of correction. So be very wary if someone comes at you with anger. Or comes at you uh, with you know, unlove or unkindness. But if someone comes to you privately in a loving and kind way, with a valid concern, listen to them. Listen to them. 
It's necessary correction that you need. God is providing through his chosen instruments something that's going to help you get back on course or help you hold to the right beliefs. It is important what you believe as a Christian. It matters what you believe. Doctrine matters. And the reason why is because if your doctrine is off, your practice will be off. If your doctrine is off, you're going to go out and teach people falsehood. Why did Apollos need to be corrected? Because the church is going to send him out. They don't want to send him out with wrong information. Look, we live in an age of pragmatism where a lot of Christians will say, it doesn't matter what I believe as long as the end result is good. Oh, yes, it does matter what you believe. Your starting point matters. You start a little bit off, you're going to end up a long way off. And one more thing before we move on to the, to the last point. You might be the giver of correction or the receiver of correction. And both of those things are really hard to pull off in a godly way. You must trust God. You must carefully consider your response and your words. A friend of mine called me once. He was someone I knew in seminary. We weren't extremely close, but we were ministry friends. And he wanted to have a cup of coffee. And I remember being a little bit surprised that he called me. If if he was around other pastors, we wouldn't have considered him the most humble man in the room. And he had gone through a really hard time in his church. He had been asked to step down because of the way he treated people. And we sat down for coffee, and he said to me, he said, Mike, um, I've been going through this self-reflective period of my life, and I need to ask you, and he said, I have a whole list of people that I've done this with, is there anything that you need to tell me about how I come across that would help me? And I told him. I told him the truth. But you know what? I never had done that before. I had thought these things, but I'd never done it. But he actually invited it. It was a very, it was a very tender-hearted moment because I told him, I said, yes, you come across arrogant. And yes, you come across as you know it all. And he said, that's what everyone's telling me. And praise God, God used all that in his life because he actually went out and looked for the correction. God provides. He provides exactly what you need in the exact time you need it. And he provides willing coworkers. That's what we've seen. He provides necessary correction. But I want you to see one last thing. It's in the first seven verses of chapter 19. He provides timely conversions that people come to faith in Christ in the perfect timing of God, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because God gives faith. God opens people's hearts to the gospel. God draws people to himself. So here's how it goes. Apollos is at Corinth, but Paul goes inland, and he comes to Ephesus, and he finds some disciples. Now, at first thought, you're like, oh, they must be believers. But their spiritual condition, based on Paul's questions and their answers, is contested. Some people say, oh, they were Christians before Paul talked to them. I tend to hold to the fact that they weren't believers until Paul shared Christ with them, and they received Christ. You have to ask the question there, what kind of disciples were they? If they weren't Christians at this point, whose disciples were they? They were John's disciples. Now, in Greek, the word for disciple is mathetes, and it means a learner or a student. It usually means someone who's trusting in Jesus for salvation, but not always. You've got John the Baptist having disciples. Acts 9 tells us about Paul's disciples. You've got the Pharisees having disciples, the, uh, Moses having disciples. So these men were disciples of John, not of Jesus at this point. 
And Paul is trying to determine their spiritual status, their spiritual condition. And so he asked them a really good question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because every time the word belief is used in the Bible, it doesn't always mean saving faith. Acts 8, there's Simon the magician, not a believer. James chapter 2, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons believe too and they shudder. Paul's question is very important and he's pointing to what it means to be a Christian. A genuine believer in Jesus has faith and the Holy Spirit. It's like in Acts 6 when they said, choose seven men full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Choose seven men who know they're saved and there's proof of it in their life. So the answer that comes back is no, we didn't receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, we don't even know there's a Holy Spirit. Now some people use this verse to teach the wrong view that receiving the Holy Spirit is a post-salvation second blessing experience. Or to teach that some Christians just don't have the Holy Spirit. That's, that's, a, that, that's false. Ephesians 1.13, very clear for all believers to know. Having believed, Paul says, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So their answer affirms they weren't Christians. They hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit, which was promised by Jesus, given on Pentecost, um, that Jesus gives his spirit to his followers who believe in him. When you come to faith in Christ, you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit immediately, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And Paul asks a second pointed question. Into what then were you baptized? And unlike Apollos, they have no knowledge of Jesus. And, and what Paul is telling them is, look, baptism is, like a is one thing along a string of, of events that people who come to faith in Christ do. You come to faith in Christ, and then you show it publicly by being baptized. Acts, 10, Acts 2, that Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for everyone whom the Lord will draw to himself. So they answer, we were baptized into John's baptism. This is a pre-Pentecostal baptism as proclaimed and practiced by John the Baptist. It was a baptism of ex expectation, not fulfillment. So Paul is explaining to them the anticipatory character of John's baptism, which was closely connected to John's proclamation of Jesus as the coming one. But they weren't clear on that. Think about it. At this point in time, Jesus had already accomplished his mission on earth. He, had, he was already raised from the dead, already exalted at the right hand of God. He had sent the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And so an anticipatory baptism was no longer valid at this point. Now, had they already believed in the Lord Jesus, they would have already been baptized in Jesus' name. Now remember, Acts is recording the transition from the Old Covenant to the New. John's preaching was a call to prepare for the Messiah who would bring in the New Covenant. These men were trusting an obsolete pre-death, burial, and resurrection of Christ system because New Covenant believers received the indwelling spirit at conversion. Romans 8, 19, 8, Romans 8, 9 is very clear. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. So the answer to both questions prompts Paul to lead them to faith in Christ. You gotta love this. God is gonna bring about a very timely conversion of these men. They hear about Jesus. Paul gives them the new info. The coming one in whom they are to believe is Jesus. So they need to believe that and receive the Holy Spirit. They hear this and they're baptized in the name of Jesus. 
the only example in the New Testament of someone getting rebaptized. They respond to Paul's proclamation of Jesus as Messiah who fulfills God's promises concerning salvation and the Spirit of God. Paul would not have baptized them if they had not professed faith in Christ. He lays his hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They speak in tongues and prophesy. Very similar to Pentecost, which is not normative today. It is, it is appropriate to the transitional time where God was confirming his gospel. And I love this. About 12 men. Well, maybe 11, maybe 13, maybe around 12. The big point is they have this newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And they expressed it by professing the name of Christ, by being baptized, receiving the Spirit. They are now Christians. Praise God for timely conversions. Verse 1, they're not believers. Verse 6, they are. Praise God. And Paul clarified where they were spiritually, which I think is something we should do. When we're, when we're talking to people who aren't believers, we should say, we should be thinking questions that we can interact with or let's say someone professes faith in Christ and you're a little doubtful of whether they really know the Lord. You need to have a heart for people and where they are spiritually. See, some people don't have a heart for the lost. They're wrapped up in their own little world. They, they can't see the real world hurtling down a steep hill on their way to hell, on the way to sudden and eternal death. Think about you before you, you were found by Jesus. You were in jeopardy and on your way to hell. By the way, I can think of 7.4 billion reasons to seek the lost. There's a lot of people in this world. And, and God saves in his perfect time. We don't save people. We present the gospel truth. And, and, and God snatches them from the flames of hell. He rescues them from sin's temporary chains and it sin's eternal penalty and consequences. And if you're a Christian today, think of this. Remember what Ephesians 2 says. Paul was writing to believers. You were dead in sin. God made you alive by his rich mercy. You, you were a, a child of wrath like the rest, and God, being rich in mercy, by grace made you alive. So I would just say this. If, if you really are intent about sharing the gospel with people, don't give them gimmicks. Just give them the, the plain, unadulterated truth. Laser beam clarity on the truth, the straight truth. Give them that. That's what they need. What did, what did God tell Paul? I have many people in this city uh, what did God do in Lydia's heart? He opened her heart to believe the gospel. How about 2 Corinthians 6, 2? Behold, now is the day of salvation. You need to care for people's eternal destiny. I had a friend, Ronnie, once, who was at my former church, and his wife was a believer, he wasn't. And I had talked with him and stuff, but I'd never really, I'd never really taken the time to truly be concerned for his soul. And one day he calls me up on the phone, and he says, Mike, could you please come over and help me become a Christian? And I, I drove over to his office in Santa Ana. He had a garage where he would fix old cars for people, old antique cars. And we sat there in his office and I led him to Christ. He asked me to. Praise God for timely conversions. Romans 5, 6 tells us, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God is faithful to provide people. God is faithful to provide what you need in his perfect time helping you navigate life's turbulence in his strength and for his glory. He provides. I was talking to one of our missionaries just the other day, and God provided miraculously for a need that they had that they didn't even ask to be met. And they said, you know, God continues to provide. Yes. Yes, he does. 
this passage of scripture uh, teaches us a lot. There's a lot here. Let me just say this. Um, let me speak to your heart for just a moment, and then we'll close. It could be, let's go back to the idea of willing coworkers. It could be that God has given you a ministry, but you're trying to do it all on your own, and you're like, no one else wants to do this with me. Well, how about you ask God to, to give you some willing coworkers so that you won't try to hold the whole burden on your own. And then when God provides them, receive them and work with them. Because people are messy. Or let's just say God has given you a ministry idea. And you're like, I really want to do this thing. Pray that God would give you some people to do that with you. Some willing co-workers with you. We could go and stand together for Jesus and the gospel. And let's just say that something painful comes your way. Let's say that God provides some correction. And it's done in a loving way, and it's done in a kind way, and a humble way. Please receive it. I'm speaking to myself and you. Please, let's, let's, re- let's, de- let's decide to receive it because it's painful but good for us. And lastly, if we know that God gives timely conversions. He's the one who saves people in his perfect time. Then if we're believers, we should be like, really resolved to go preach the gospel. Maybe even you would say, okay, I'm just gonna pray that God would give me the boldness to to share Christ with one person. Just one person, maybe today or tomorrow or the next day. But let's just say that the last part of that is is you, where you you say, I'm not converted. (laughs) I'm not a Christian. I, I, you know, love to be a part of the program, but um, I'm dead. And, And you if you're really realizing that right now, then God's probably done a work in your heart already. It's called regeneration, where you're like, no, 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 I want that. I want Jesus. I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. And you say, I need salvation. I need Jesus. I've tried and failed so many times. And let me just read this, and then we'll close. John, Gospel of John, chapter 6. People were asking Jesus, What should we be doing to do the works of God? Great question. Here's the answer. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he said to those he was talking with, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And then he says these words that we cling to. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I've talked to people before who said, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough to become a Christian. Well, that's everyone. We all deserve hell. None of us are good enough to become a Christian. Only Jesus can save us by his grace, by his mercy. So whatever you're facing today, however wherever you land in the whole spectrum of things, whether you're not a believer and you need Jesus, whether you're, you're in ministry or you're serving the Lord, but maybe you're trying to do too many things alone, or maybe you won't take correction, or maybe you need to go correct someone, turn your eyes on Jesus. He's faithful to provide exactly what you need. He will not always give you what you want. But may he give us grace to receive what he gives. Amen? Lord, thank you for your grace.
Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to provide exactly what we need. Thank you that you don't give us what we want all the time. And I do pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to accept your gracious provision. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.